The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Alison Phipps. We talked about Alison's new book, Me Not You, The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism. We chatted about the Me Too movement and what it reveals about the mainstream of feminist politics, how violence against women is necessary to the project of capitalist globalisation, and how the image of the imperiled white woman has been central to the project of colonialism, both formal and informal. Alison Phipps is Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Sussex and a scholar activist in the movement against sexual violence at universities. She is the author of Women in Science, Engineering and Technology and The Politics of the Body, Gender in a Neoliberal and Neoconservative Age. Her new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Me, Not You, The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism, which is out now from Manchester University Press. So the subtitle of the book is The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism. It obviously sort of begs the question, you know, how do you define mainstream feminism? What is mainstream and and, and what isn't to your mind? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think a lot of the arguments you make kind of hinge on the definitions you use. So in the book, I define mainstream feminism as media feminism, kind of mainstream media feminism in the kind of well-known outlets, some social media feminism, not all, policy feminism, institutional feminism, corporate feminism, in kind of the core Anglosphere and in parts of Europe. And I think that I call that mainstream feminism because that is the type of feminism that tends to have a lot of purchase on policy. It also tends to have travelled quite extensively and to be influencing policy frameworks or feminist movements in other parts of the world. So I kind of felt it was important to critique it. But I'm also aware that by defining that as mainstream, I'm kind of reifying that as mainstream as well. So it's a bit of a tightrope to walk. And to your mind, what are the key features of mainstream feminism? I mean, this has been analysed before, not by me, as you obviously know, and it's been called kind of feminism for the 1%, neoliberal feminism, popular feminism sometimes. I think one of the key features is that it tends to seek equality within the status quo rather than a change to the status quo. So it's kind of about seeking power rather than dismantling power. And then the book talks about the way in which mainstream feminism operates in relation to sexual violence, which is that it tends to focus on kind of getting the bad men and using either criminal punishment or institutional discipline in order to do that without kind of thinking about who those systems might also hurt and without sometimes without thinking about the kind of systemic reasons why we we have sexual violence in the first place. 
On that point about mainstream feminism seeking equality within current social arrangements, where would you want to place trans rights? Because it seems that the status of, of trans issues in, in say, the, the liberal mainstream, say, in the United States, is somewhat different from the UK. So would you see a certain treatment of trans issues, which perhaps is similar to the way in which gay rights are treated in, in mainstream venues, that characterises the situation in the US, but perhaps not so much in the UK? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it's quite interesting how the kind of trans-exclusionary feminism seems to have really taken off in the UK. And maybe actually I should qualify that because it's not really the UK, it's England and to a certain extent Scotland as well. And I know, I mean, I know you've interviewed Sophie Lewis a few times who is amazing and she has a really good grasp, I think, on why that might have happened to do with the kind of specific history of kind of lesbian separatism in this country, the history of the sceptics movement, but also the fact that white feminists in the UK, mainstream white feminists in, well, England, I should say, in Scotland, are quite a small community. There's a lot of kind of camaraderie and loyalty between them. But also the mainstream movement hasn't had quite the same battering that the mainstream movement, say, in the US has had from civil rights movements and from black feminists and other feminists of colour for whatever reason. I think that white feminists in, in England have been able to get away with it for quite a long time. I think the other thing is I recently read Nadine El-Anani's book, Bordering Britain, which is also brilliant, in which she talks about the very specific formulation of English racism and the sense of kind of Anglo-Saxon superiority. And I think there is something about being the nation that colonised as opposed to being the settler colonial nation that kind of gives you a sense of entitlement to name, to have, to control, which I can see happening in English trans-exclusionary feminism quite a lot. So it's quite a colonial mindset as well. Is there also a question around the extent to which black American women are perhaps more inclined to question gender essentialism because they were often not really posited as being true women historically? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's very difficult to hold a trans-exclusionary position at the same time as you hold a, a kind of an intersectional position which engages with colonial history because authentic womanhood was exported as kind of a property of bourgeois whiteness. And I think that is something that black feminists understand really well. So I think that is a big part of it. I also think that in the US and also in Ireland, where there's been a real pushback against trans-exclusionary feminism, of course, abortion is really at the forefront of feminist politics in those countries. And it's very difficult to hold a feminist position which kind of has bodily autonomy front and centre and also say that trans people shouldn't be allowed to do what they want with their own bodies. Moving from the subtitle of the book to the title itself. So obviously that title makes reference to the Me Too movement, which you discuss at length, particularly around the dominance of white women in the movement and, and the relative marginalisation of, of black and brown women. So could you talk a bit about Me Too and what it reveals about the core characteristics of mainstream feminism in, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of latched it onto Me Too, partly because it was really that that sort of crystallised all of my uneasiness with the mainstream movement around sexual violence, which I'd been part of for about 15 years, kind of working around sexual violence in universities. And I think the Me Not You, it's about white feminists effectively speaking over 
black and brown feminists in the even in the process of speaking out because of the kind of the power of white womanhood and especially the kind of cultural power of victimized white womanhood speaking out can actually become speaking over a lot of the time even if that that's not the intention and there were also examples that were more more deliberate but the me not you also refers to the fact that the strategies of the mainstream movement effectively harm more marginalised communities, but there's not much attention paid to that. And sometimes when that's kind of raised, there's almost a defensiveness. So it's a kind of double-edged thing. And I think what I saw in Me Too, and maybe it was because it came quite soon after Brexit. So I was really kind of in that mindset of just noticing all of this visible racism and all of this visible white narcissism and white woundedness, which kind of came to the surface over Brexit. And then Me Too happened. And, you know, and I don't want to invalidate anybody's trauma or anybody's pain or anybody's experience, but I did see some continuities between that centering of the wounded white subject and also that kind of desire to achieve retribution or revenge or justice but without kind of any mind paid to what the broader effects of that might be so I think that in terms of sexual violence it kind of crystallizes that because the feminist movement against sexual violence is obviously a movement that places women's victimization front and center but because of that and because white womanhood is a kind of inherently victimized position symbolically it kind of crystallizes some of that for me what do you think is the best way to address that because obviously there's a danger with that kind of critique that some white women will hear that as a claim that the very real abuse and trauma that they've experienced shouldn't be considered important or shouldn't be talked about so much so how do you think it can be addressed in a way that's sensitive to that yeah there really is and i think that some white women have clearly kind of interpreted my book as saying that and all I can say about that is I apologize for that because there's obviously something that I haven't quite managed to communicate in as effective a way as I had wanted to I mean I think that the first thing to do is to really grasp the fact that one can be a victim and a perpetrator at the same time one can be both marginalized and privileged at the same time and saying that white women are privileged because of their or because of our whiteness does not mean that we don't have horrible experiences and it doesn't mean that some of our lives aren't horrible I mean of course if we're looking at this intersectionally we have to look at other things as well like class sexual orientation disability and all of the rest so I think there's something about being able to hold two things simultaneously and I think that that's very difficult if you are at a stage in your trauma where it's kind of there are bits of it which are unprocessed or there are bits of it which you still don't feel believed about and then somebody coming in and saying oh you know the victim position in mainstream feminism is problematic must feel really hurtful so I think that there's something about acknowledging that as well and hearing that trauma and it's been my experience that in having these types of difficult conversations with fellow white women hearing the trauma and validating the trauma and kind of saying I see you and I see the horrendous experience you've had kind of goes some way to then being able to unpick the other bits of it, if that makes sense. 
because I'm a survivor myself and it's, you know, it's taken me a long time to get to that place. And I'm not, I'm certainly not finished. I mean, I'm certainly not saying that my politics and my understandings are perfect. I think it's very, very hard. Another part of your critique of Me Too is in terms of how effective the movement has actually been in reducing violence against women. So could you talk about why you question the effectiveness of simply naming and shaming perpetrators, although that's not necessarily all of the attempts at redress that Me Too involves? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really at its core. It's kind of about strategies that individualise the problem. And in the book, I talk about something called institutional airbrushing, which I've observed in universities, but which happens in other industries and institutions as well, where, you know, somebody is called out, somebody is named and shamed. And the institution or organisation then gets rid of that bad apple and then moves on and carries on as if nothing's happened. So I think that that is partly why I haven't seen... I mean, I'm sure there have been changes which have happened as a result of Me Too. It was an incredibly powerful movement and I think it did raise a huge amount of awareness and there has been a shift in kind of what can be discussed. But I think that the lack of kind of big structural changes and cultural changes as a result of Me Too is probably because of that. And actually, you can see that with Black Lives Matter as well, can't you? You can kind of see this huge movement emerges around institutionalised racism, structural racism, and then various institutions start renaming buildings or taking pictures down or doing whatever they're doing as if that's a response to Black Lives Matter when actually that hasn't been what's been asked for but then they've done it and then they move on you know because they say well that's been our response and it's it's a kind of similar thing when these things are are dealt with and that's not just about the mainstream feminism which is kind of at fault here that's about institutional responses to mainstream feminism but I think what I'm arguing is that the formulation of mainstream feminism makes it very easy for institutions to then just airbrush out the bad individual and carry on regardless. And on that point on Black Lives Matter, so in terms of that point you make about there not being the big cultural and structural changes we need, in in the context of, of race in America, would you see then, for instance, attempts to more harshly sentence policemen who carry out murders of black and brown people, that wouldn't necessarily be part of a sufficient cultural and structural change in your mind? No, I don't think so. I don't think you can use the prison system to eradicate violence. I mean, I think if the families of people who have been murdered feel that campaigning for more harsher sentences or, you know, for indeed for police to be incarcerated at all, if that brings them some measure of comfort, then that's completely up to them to campaign for that. But I think that a lot of the abolitionist responses to Black Lives Matter were not about kind of harsher sentences for police. They weren't about trying to prosecute police officers. They were about saying this whole system is broken and you can get rid of these bad apples, but there'll be more that comes up in their place because, you know, the tree is rotten, basically. And so in the sphere of violence against women, what would be those big cultural and structural changes that would be necessary? Oh, I think, well, I think we need, we can talk small scale, we can talk larger scale. In the in the conclusion of the book, I do a kind of a thought experiment on kind of what a world without 
sexual violence would look like. And of course, that is a world without capitalism, you know, which would probably mean a world where binary gender was not so kind of starkly defined. It would mean a world where everybody had enough. It would mean a world where we kind of used a logic of care, a logic of accountability rather than punishment. And it would be a world in which some groups didn't dominate other groups through violence. And I think, you know, obviously that sounds really utopian, but we can use that as a kind of blueprint for where we want our politics to go. So some of the things I talk about in the book might seem quite unrelated to sexual violence, things like a universal basic income, for example, because it's very difficult to deal with violence while basic needs are not being met. Other things might be kind of completely rethinking how we deal with with education from kind of the earliest stages right up. And obviously we need to get rid of this criminal punishment system and in terms of feminism against sexual violence, not least because it limits our imaginations and kind of restricts them to the status quo. And while we're still campaigning for more police, longer sentences, more convictions, we're not really building any alternatives. As well as not building alternatives, you also talk about the way in which upholding the existing legal system serves to impact on people from less privileged parts of the population, black and brown women in particular, but also the working class in in general. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I really like, again, going back to Nadine's book, her analysis of this. I mean, law is basically a sorting mechanism, isn't it? And sorting mechanisms are colonial. So it categorises us, it sorts out kind of who gets what, who is a citizen, who is a non-citizen, who is a criminal, who is a non-criminal, who's a victim and who's a perpetrator. And you can kind of use that system for your own ends, but as long as you're not one of the groups that have been pre-sorted into categories that don't deserve to get anything, that are non-citizens, that are already kind of criminalised or or what have you. Which is not to say, I think, that campaigning for legal reform or contesting things in a legal way is worthless. It's just that I think it needs to be one of a multi-pronged strategy you know as Mariam Carb always says try everything so use the law where you think it can get you things that you might need as long as that's not preventing other people from getting the things that they might need use everything at your disposal but don't think that legal equality is the answer and I think we saw this during Covid didn't we you know in countries where we've had formal gender equality for decades women were finding themselves back in the 1950s in a lot of ways because their their caring burdens just exploded or our caring burdens just exploded and and we realized that a lot of the things that we'd kind of fought for and thought that we'd won could be taken away quite quickly in terms of the differential impact of the legal system on different sectors of the population do you think that partly just reflects a failure of imagination on on the part of white middle class feminists just because their experience of the legal system is significantly different from other people's Yeah, I think so. And I think that mainstream white feminism is guilty of a big failure of imagination. And probably that's because if you stand to benefit from a bigger slice of the pie, then that's what you will imagine. That's what you will campaign for. Whereas groups that know the pie is not meant for them at all will have to start imagining a different pie or, you know, a different table. So I think that's that's absolutely a big part of it. And I that's I guess that's what I'm arguing in the book. I'm saying that I want more for us. I want survivors of sexual violence to have more to choose from than criminal punishment, 
naming and shaming or nothing. And the lack of imagination in mainstream feminism is kind of implicated in the lack of options that we have. On a slightly different aspect of of your argument, so you make the point that sexual violence supports economic expansion, which will perhaps seem a surprising claim to anyone holding a sort of liberal perspective that sees sexual violence and and patriarchy as hangovers, maybe very resilient ones, but nonetheless hangovers of outmoded forms of social organisation. So could you explain a little bit about how sexual violence is functional to capitalism and and capitalist globalisation? I can. And actually, this is something I'm working on for my next book. So it might be a little bit unformed. What I've got at the moment is kind of a big table with different what I'm calling vectors of sexual violence. So ways in which sexual violence enters the world. And those are acts, threats, allegations and punishment I'm kind of saying are the four ways that sexual violence enters the world and there's four things that they do and different ones of them might do one or more and not others so it's it's kind of a method of mapping so the first thing they do is impose bourgeois binary gender so sexual violence is a gendering project whether that's imposing men's power over women or whether that's punishing people who don't conform to binary gender or whether that's feminizing men that other men want to have power over it imposes binary gender it's a gendering project but it also keeps women in their place And keeping women in their place is highly functional for capitalism because it enables capitalism to extract free social reproduction within the home or extremely low cost social reproduction in the kind of caring spheres of society. So that's the second thing that these vectors do. They extract free and low cost social reproduction. And that is both gendered. It's also classed and raced. So sexual violence supports and supported colonial systems in which black and other racialized populations have been enslaved or are in hyper exploited domestic caring or service work and that's obviously a class you know they are put into a particular class position so that's the second thing they do and then linked to that they kind of facilitate neo-colonialism through continuing to terrorize racialized colonized displaced dispossessed populations in war occupation settlement enslavement theft so that's through history and now and they also construct particular populations cultures and nations as violent so sexual violence is a bordering project and the allegation and punishment of sexual violence is part of a project to construct certain types of people as more violent so more powerful people can do things to them whether that's kind of invading their territories whether that's keeping them out of our territories and then the fourth thing that they do which is also highly functional for capitalism is enabling the disposal of populations deemed surplus to requirements and that again is the allegations and punishments so sexual violence has been used to demonize migrants so they can be deported for example trump's comments about mexicans come to mind it can also be used to funnel racialized and classed populations into the prison industrial complex as well. Um, and that's kind of part of what I talk about in my book, how, you know, particularly the idea of the dangerous black man, but that 
kind of idea can be applied to other groups as well is part of the criminalization of certain populations and a white woman can still call the cops on a black man in the US especially but over here potentially as well and you know he could be killed or at least seriously injured. Yeah, and that sort of binary between the dangerous black man and and the imperiled white woman in the context of colonialism. Could you discuss that a little bit and the importance of that positing of white women as, as something to be protected and how important that was to the colonial project? Yeah, I mean, I always say that protecting white women is actually protecting white supremacy. And colonialism used sexual violence very much as a tool, whether that was through terrorising indigenous and enslaved women, and sometimes men and gender non-conforming people through attacks, or whether that was constructing normally men of colour as violent and as a threat to white womanhood. And there are lots of examples of colonial massacres, which kind of started with an allegation of violence against a white woman. And that enables the domination of populations. So sexual violence then takes on kind of broader functions. And Angela Davis talks about how laws against sexual violence initially functioned to protect the property of white men. So their property was their wives. So sexual violence was actually a property crime against a privileged white man. But in the relations of colonialism, the incredibly violent and genocidal relations of colonialism, both acts of sexual violence and prohibitions against sexual violence took on kind of new forms. And it was a key tool by which, you know, whole swathes of people were dominated and terrorised. And then, of course, I mean, we all know the stories about the lynchings in the US of black men who were accused of attacking white women. And that isn't just about kind of community on community power. It's also about black economic power. So in the period after abolition, there were these attacks on growing black economic and social power, which used the kind of rhetoric of sexual violence. And the um, massacre on Black Wall Street was a good example of that, in which um, a whole community was basically kind of burned down and raised to the ground after an accusation that I think it was that a black man had assaulted a white female elevator attendant. So it's not just about terrorising people, it's also about kind of smacking down communities which are becoming too successful, if that makes sense. And that dynamic seems to be very much rearing its head at the moment in terms of the resurgent far right. But do you see the centrality of, of this idea of, of protecting white middle class women, but, but also children, which we see particularly the sort of conspiratorial stuff like QAnon at the moment? Do you see it only located there or do you think this also plays a role in liberal feminism? I think it also plays a role in liberal feminism in that I think liberal feminism can often be quite unwitting in how it's kind of playing that role. But that is a kind of privileged in ignorance in the sense of you don't have to necessarily think about why what you're doing is playing into all these problematic narratives, because it doesn't really affect you. But I think there are other parts of liberal feminism and I, you know, I'm kind of, the reason I'm hesitating is because some of the trans-exclusionary feminists in the UK would be defined as liberal feminists. I define them as reactionary feminists, but I think there's a real crossover there, especially in England, I should say. And I don't think that is unwitting. I think that there are some of these feminists who don't really care that much that 
some of the rhetoric they're using is really dovetailing in with the rhetoric of the far right and with these, you know, completely kind of off the wall groups like QAnon. And I don't and I don't really fully understand why that is, apart from that they just seem to be so single minded about the trans issue that they're willing to overlook all of the problems with what they're doing. Do you think that part of it reflects a, a, maybe this is not conscious and not necessarily articulated, but many of these people have really sort of disavowed any kind of properly socialist project. There's no sort of utopian horizon for them. There's no real prospect of, of ending the social structure of our societies and transitioning to something else. And so it simply becomes a question of, of what can we win for our group versus others? Yes, I think that's right. And I think that's right. I think it's a very kind of either a project that's mired in the status quo, or as you say, quite a pessimistic project about, you know, none of this is going to change. Everything is awful. So we're just going to fight like cats and dogs for what we can get. And there's also a real, I think they really have taken on that very sort of Brexit rhetoric of scarcity as well. So there's not enough to go around. That's a fact. And so we need to fight for our piece of the pie rather than thinking, well, actually, is there another pie in the oven that they're not telling us about? Or could they actually make another pie with all this stuff that they're throwing away in other in other places? And we could all have enough. So so I think you're probably right. And it is to do with the abandonment of a, of a kind of a properly socialist politics, although some of the trans exclusionary feminists in England call themselves socialists and have a long history of doing socialist work and those are the ones I find really difficult to understand I still I mean maybe maybe Sophie Lewis would would uh, would be able to understand and answer that better than me but I find that quite difficult to grasp apart from that it's it's to do with this idea of women as a sex class and it's to do with a kind of lack of intersectionality and of course you see that on the white left in general a lot of the time you know where class is paramount and there's a lack of engagement with other structures so maybe that kind of influences that sort of socialist feminism where women are one group with the same needs the same interests and we have to fight for those I'm often struck by the bitterness of the tone of these people which is partly what makes me think about that sort of political pessimism that you that you describe yeah and I think there's something about nobody's life is particularly great at the moment is it unless you're super rich and Something I've thought quite a lot about is the role of Mumsnet in English trans-exclusionary feminism. And I do think there are a lot of women on Mumsnet who have class privilege, you know, they are white women, but their lives are shit. You know, they're stuck at home, they're looking after kids, they're sort of drudging away and they're sort of thinking, how has this happened to me? Why is my life so shit? And that kind of feeds into the sort of Brexit whiteness of I'm entitled to more than this. And these other people are getting what I should be getting. It's just it's kind of directed in a different way. And I feel like some of these women, they embrace feminism as a, as a means to understand why their life is shit and to fight back against it and to bond with other people over this shared issue. But then it becomes quite territorial. And then it, it becomes threatening to see other groups making claims on the basis of gender or other groups that they don't want to let into their feminism. And I do think that has a lot of parallels with that kind of Brexit mentality. My life should be better than this it must be the immigrants my life should be better than this it must be the trans people you've been listening to politics theory other a podcast from tribune magazine if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other pto shows then please consider becoming a supporter 
You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.